Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. All right, Daniel DiMartino, join us. Okay. We always want to have a broad perspective on our program. It's something our audience works really hard on. Give me that perspective. You come to this country, you come from Venezuela, you come to America. What did you expect and what did you actually find that maybe surprised you a little bit? Just put people in your mindset as you first came to America to study how different it was and what really struck you about it when you got here. Well, look, the the biggest difference that is very quickly noticed is uh, security and safety. Uh, Venezuela is and was a very dangerous country. Uh, it, you know, Caracas has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Kidnapping is very common. Robbery is the order of the day. Um, and, and so being able to walk in the street by myself um, in Indianapolis, where I lived, was a very big change in my quality of life for the better. Um, you know, I, I didn't have normal teenage years, right? I couldn't go to parties at any time. You know, we started hosting parties in the day, staying at friends' homes um, be, because things were very different. Um, so that that was a big change. You know, the weather was a big change, uh, you know, seeing snow and all that. You're not saying Indianapolis is a little different weather-wise than South America. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, I did my first annual in the snow. It wasn't the first time I saw snow. I saw snow in some mountains in Venezuela when I was a baby. But certainly the first time I remember. Um, and and it, was very, it was very cool. I enjoyed it very much. But I also saw, uh, you know, a lot of things that I didn't see in Venezuela. Uh, some of them were that the population in Venezuela by that time had already become very anti-regime, very anti-socialist, very much that they wanted more economic freedom. And here I saw the opposite. I saw a lot of young people who wanted the government to, to control everything, who didn't know anything about what was going on in the rest of the world, like Venezuela and other places, which I did because, you know, I lived in Venezuela and because I, I had an interest in politics because I, I, I was living in a political experiment. Um, but then I, I, you know, culture is different. Um, I really enjoyed being in America. It's a totally different experience in Venezuela. There was a lot of, um, because of the whole security situation, you couldn't even tell your friends what your parents did for a living because you were afraid that some kidnapper would end up knowing. Um, so, so you just felt more at ease in the United States. Um, I, I love it, Andrew. I, you know, this is a very special country. The people are very special. I think that people exaggerate uh, our political differences very much, and they do it because they don't know what real political differences are, which is what happened in Venezuela, in countries where there has even been genocide, where people killed each other for politics. That, that's not, I don't think that's going to happen here, and I hope it doesn't get that bad. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk about real quick, too, um, culturally, when you come over here, 
we talk about it in the abstract that, you know, America is a big pluralistic, inclusive society. It's very, very diverse. We say that as a buzzword, but I always, when I talk to people who come here from a foreign country, I remember my German exchange buddies, when they came over here, they were just like, wow, there's so many different people here. Talk about the difference in that, especially, you know, you grew up middle of the country. You're now, you know, kind of around DC more. You've been around the country doing media stuff. Now, the culture of America, that diversity, that plurality, Talk about how unique that really is when you come here from another country. Well, look, I never felt discriminated in Venezuela, which I know many, in, sorry, in, in the United States, I never felt discriminated in this country. Because and while I saw some Venezuelan friends who immigrated to other parts of Latin America, and they faced like explicit discrimination in the street from other people. And based on their accent, which was the only thing that made people know whether you were Venezuelan. Um, because there's no single Venezuelan look um, or ethnicity. So, so that, that was very shocking to, to see that happening there, not, not in the United States, right? Which has a different language, which is not as culturally close to Venezuela as the rest of Latin America. And so I, I thought that in the United States, I didn't have any of those problems. Um, you know, I had friends from everywhere, from Indi you know, Indian people, uh, you know, regular American natives from Indiana, uh, from different religions, Jews, Christians, uh, you know, atheists, and and that 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 was very cool. You know, I was able to learn from from very many different people. Um, I I will say though that the the whole um, racial situation in this country and um, controversies, you know, strife or, or however you want to call it. It's something that was new to me because it's not something that, that I experienced in Venezuela. Um, you know, seeing sometimes people in the college cafeteria sit down only with like other black people or with other white people, that was very strange um, because that was not what happened in, in Caracas at least. Um, you know, people didn't really care at all and it was not even part of the conversation, uh, ethnicity. Uh, which here it is. And I think that that's the only negative thing that I, that I thought culturally America had, like we really need to get over the whole uh, ethnicity of, of, of the population issue. Yeah, great thing. Let's just get into it because I'm so excited about it, called the Dissident Project. Now we know what dissident is. Let's do nomenclature again so we don't lose folks. That's a nice big fat word. Dissident, uh, people are going to start thinking Red Dawn and Wolverines and such. That's not what we're talking about here. Dissident Project, my friend, what do you got in mind with it and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, the Dissident Project is uh, this uh, venture of young voices that I had the idea of. And uh, we got together a group of eight people, including myself, from socialist countries in America, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and Hong Kong, which was recently taken over by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and we're gonna to travel to high schools all over the United States to tell our stories and connect it to what's happening here in America and why people need to choose freedom and not big government to solve their problems. Uh, taking as a lesson what happened in our, in our countries of origin. Why is that important? Because recently Florida passed a law that requires uh, public high schools to teach about communism, totalitarian systems. And uh, even more recently, it requires 45 minutes of instruction, including firsthand experience from people who live in those places to the students once a year. That means that there are over 2000 high schools in the state of Florida who will need to, to teach about this. And what a better resource than the Eastern Project to bring speakers to our school, which we have thanks to a group of donors to Young Voices 
uh, we're gonna travel there uh, for free. You know, they're, they're gonna organize the trips and we're volunteering uh, our time to, to, to serve the schools and to talk to the students, which is something that I've loved doing already and I've done before, but now we're gonna do with more people. Now, how are we going to tailor something like this? Because I imagine, let's take Florida, for example. If you're in the Miami area, obviously huge Cuban expat population, very vocal, very politically active down there. Uh, that would be preaching to the choir to those folks because they know it, they've lived it, they believe it strongly. I said, I would submit you'd probably deal with that one a little differently than let's talk Indianapolis again. If you go back to Indiana where people, it's more of an abject thing, you're probably going to address them differently. How do you tailor that to different audiences? Because again, big plural, diverse uh, nation, people have different experiences with government. Small town's going to have a different experience with government than a big city is. Isn't this something that you're going to be able to tailor a little bit differently wherever you take it between the eight of you? Of course, and, and we're going to tailor it, and especially it has to be tailored towards a high school student audience, right, which is not the same as an adult audience. So notice that it's much more difficult to, to gain their attention from, but it's also an audience that is much more open to learning, right, because they don't have as many preconceived political beliefs, they, they haven't made up their mind about most issues, and unlike going to colleges or, or adult events, which are a self-selected audience of people who already agrees with the speaker, usually. In high schools, the teachers send the students regardless of their political beliefs. So we actually have an impact on persuasion and, and on telling people who don't know and maybe are not that interested in the issue and catch their attention and tell them some things. So how we start always is with our story of who, whoever the speaker is uh, of a roster of this project and from the story, they tell, you know, they connected to, to what happens in America. They warn people about the, the politicians, the, the, the people here who actually support socialist regimes and who, who actually support socialist policies for this country, such that people are not deceived of what that means, right? The, the, the people who, are, who claim to be socialists here and say that they just want free healthcare, that's not really what they want. They don't really want what the Nordic countries have. They they actually they want actual Venezuelan, Cuban, you know, Chinese socialist policies, and and that's what we need to warn students about from people who actually lived it and can tell you what were the consequences in our daily lives. Like I didn't have electricity many days per week and water sometimes for several weeks straight after the government took over water and made it free because there was no money to maintain the equipment. And then when the, the things that they did have money for, which is the money they printed, created inflation, which reduced my purchasing power, which we're already seeing in the United States now. They gave so many checks for free to people and now we have nearly 9% inflation. So these things happen. Now it's happening at a much smaller scale here, but if have no doubt, if they were to continue giving checks to people, we would easily have 20, 30% inflation. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, something a little different. Let's talk movies. When we want to talk movies, 
we go to this man because he's great at it. He knows things about it. I don't because I'm not that big a movie guy, so I lean on him. Uh, Luis Mendez, our good friend, he has an excellent sub stack. He writes. He also writes at Ordinary-Times.com occasionally. How are you, my friend? How's things down in sunny South Florida? Well, it's first of all, it's super hot down here. But uh, other than that, I'm very happy that the movie season for 2022 has actually started off really good with, to my pleasant surprise because I was actually a little scared that last year had been maybe a little too top heavy. But I think it's been a pretty solid start to the year for movies. See, we just did Memorial Day weekend. Top Gun came out. Massive movie. Huge hit. Going to be a monster film. I think it did 150-ish over the weekend, 300 worldwide, something like, you know, traditional summer blockbuster movie number. It's remind people, because COVID, we kind of forgot, this used to be what Memorial Day weekend about the movies was about. You had a big tentpole, top-of-the-line movie on Memorial Day weekend for five or six days, and that was, like, usually one of the movies of the year. That used to be the way COVID hit. Are we back to it, or is this an aberration, do you think? I mean, I, I don't want to say it's an aberration. Uh, I feel like we're sort of back to normal to an extent. Um, I, I We've been seeing a trend, and this has been going on even before COVID, and I think maybe COVID kind of accelerated it, where people are being much more limited in what movies are going to go see. And a lot of that is because, understandably, um, folks are noticed that the theatrical window isn't as long as it used to be in after a movie comes out in theaters these days 90 days or so it's already available on streaming or it's already showing up at their store on dvd so i think people are being more limited in what movies actually go to see in the theater uh but there's no doubt about it that covid hurt the box office uh and accelerated these trends what i'm very happy to see Top Gun doing this is, look, as much as I love and have a lot of fun with the MCU movies, it is really nice to see a non-MCU movie getting this kind of box office, especially a good movie like this. Uh, I'm very happy for Top Gun and Paramount, especially because they've been having some rough times the last couple of years. Uh, I think they're having a really good 2022 between this, The Lost City, the Sonic movie. They've got a major awards contender coming out at the end of the year. Uh, I, I think that if anything, this shows that if you can make a good enough movie with enough word of mouth, you can compete or do respectable, even against the big superhero movies that everybody's going out to see. And we're even seeing this with smaller movies, because there's a great movie that we recommend people check out uh, called Everything Everywhere All at Once that came out, small movie, indie film, um, this movie movie's legs have been uh history making it's not you know it's not making ridiculous money but the legs have been there because of the great word of mouth and i hope we get to see a little bit of that in a day and age where everybody kind of just shows up for the superhero movies yeah and it's interesting you bring it up that way because one of the reasons i like following you in your writing is you understand not you don't just review the films you understand the business side of this Talk about this for a minute, because I don't remember, at least in my lifetime, a movie like Top Gun. And maybe it's because, you know, Tom Cruise has the stroke to make these things work. Maybe it's because the brand is so big and so nostalgic. Do you remember any other time where a studio held a movie for over two years, a big movie when they went through some struggling years on top of it would have been, you know, there's reports out there about how much Apple and Netflix and these other companies were offering uh, for Top Gun, if they took it to streaming, do you remember any kind of a comparison to this 
where they held a movie this long and it was still this big and this successful? This long, but I know this is not the first movie that had it was held back because of the pandemic that there were rumors of streaming services getting involved and getting it. I mean, I think that the latest James Bond, there was talk about Amazon uh, streaming it, Godzilla versus Kong. There was talk about Netflix buying that from Legendary. Uh, I know that the Dune, uh, there have been some talks about that, which led to the director kind of speaking out. But yeah, this movie has been held back from us for two years. I mean, I remember watching trailers for this back in 2020. Uh, but they have been very careful to say, we're going to release this when the crowds are back so they can see it on the big screen. And it's paid off big time for them because not only is the movie a critical success, uh, it's a financial success. And I actually think, spoiler alert for the next time I write up my best picture Oscar projections, I think it's a long shot, but not impossible um, contender to be that populist best picture nominee. That's how well I think this movie has been received. They're definitely going to get some technical awards, aren't they? Because I want, and I'll, I'll confess, and I'm somewhat known as not being a huge movie goer. I don't like the, the climate of a theater, but I went to this and I went to it in IMAX. And I was telling you before we started something like IMAX, when you have a live shot movie, for the most part, there wasn't a lot of CGI in this film. You could really tell the difference in the way this movie was shot. This was quite an epic achievement in movie making. I know a lot of it's technology from the first one 35 years ago where they can put cameras in the cockpits and things like this. It's just spectacular just watching it visually. This was, aside from the plot and the nostalgia and Tom Cruise and the soundtrack, that movie visually is just one of the best things to just sit and stare at for two hours of anything I've ever seen on a big screen. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I think it's one of the things that, say, like a Christopher Nolan has been generally good at is that... In this day and age of CGI, to actually use some technical, uh, real life stuff, uh, which you just can't beat when you're trying compared to trying to recreate something. Uh, I got to think that sound wise, at least it gets a nomination, at least sound, uh, you know, worst, worst case scenario. But I think it has the ability to perhaps do re, uh, even go beyond that. I mean, they, they played this movie at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, so it's definitely got its uh, eyes on everybody in the industry and regular moviegoers. Yeah, he won't get it, but it'd be, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Miles Teller getting some kind of a nod on one of the lower level awards for something because I thought he was great in that film. Oh, yeah, I agree. But unfortunately, when it comes to acting awards, a lot of the, it's very hard for genre films to yeah. break through. If a genre film breaks through big, it'll usually just be based on the story and the movie itself. Uh, we don't get, unfortunately, we don't get those Heath Ledgers, Melissa McCarthy, and Bridesmaids sort of things. They're very rare. Yeah, but I, th I thought that was a an eye-popping moment for Teller, who's been really good for a while now. Yeah. But, but man, you, you take some, Anthony Edwards is a well-known actor, and yeah. that role is iconic. Everybody knows who Goose is. If you just say that, that's all you got to say, and everybody knows it. And man, he killed it. That's not that's not easy for an actor to carry that kind of weight on a new film. And he transformed himself, and I thought it was pretty impressive myself. And I'm a fan, so I'm biased here. But that if that doesn't work, that movie don't work. And he carried it. Yeah, and and I even said in my written review that he did so well that I actually almost I actually looked up just to make sure that Miles Teller was not uh, Anthony Edwards' son because he, he he was that he just was 
that well in the role. And it's nice to see Miles Teller finally, because he's he's a great actor, like you said, but unfortunately, uh, some of his projects of late haven't been great. So I'm happy to see him in something good. I think the last thing I saw him in something really, really great was maybe Whiplash from a couple years back. Um, and uh, by the way, and, and uh, this isn't really a spoiler because they, they show it in the trailer, but it, it is nice to see Val Kilmer again, especially with the troubles that he's been dealing with of late. And I think that really helped to come full circle into that relationship between Maverick and Iceman. Yeah, and not, and we're not spoiling anything. Everybody knows he has throat cancer. Uh, this will probably be his last film role for all practical purposes. How good of an actor do you have to be to act after you no longer have the ability to speak? And he conveyed stuff with his facial movements and his, his I thought he, he wasn't just there for filler. He did a performance and it was, man, there wasn't a dry eye in that theater I was in when that, ha like, as soon as they knew, like, oh, this is the, this is the Val Kilmer scene. Like, you could feel it in the theater. Like, it was one of those visceral moments that you only get in the theater. And I know I bash theaters, but this was one where everybody went, oh, God, this is where Val is. And you could feel it out of the audience, and it was emotional. It was perfectly well done. There was just a little hint of comedy to take the edge off it. I, that's as good as seen from two real, real pros as you'll ever see, I think. Oh, yeah, and, and it is one of those moments where I think it, it's a, able to create that audience uh, re, uh, that audience participation moment in the theater that if most if audiences just kept quiet and had more of those, that people would understand the point of having a good time at the movies. Um, and I will say that if if any folks out there want to know more about Val Kilmer, the stuff he's going through there on Amazon Prime, there's a great documentary that came out last year called Val. And uh, it, having seen that documentary before seeing this, it only really made me even more appreciate more uh, that they were able to get him in this movie. Yeah, I was it. You could hear a pin drop and I was watching it in IMAX, which is as loud as it gets. And there's. I don't know, four or 500 people in there. This is a big, this is way bigger than a normal movie theater. You could hear a pin drop during that scene. Like it was, it was a special moment. By the way, Miles Teller, um, free plug here, Only the Brave. Great movie. Didn't do great at the box office. Josh Brolin's in it. The firefighter movie. Those are the smoke jumpers that killed out in New Mexico. Uh, I thought he was great in that, that he doesn't get a oh, lot of Oh, you know, for. hey, you're right. I, I almost kind of forgot about that movie. I think I remember that film coming out a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, and he he's the main character for all intents and purposes. He really carries it and does a great job in a really, really hard role, very emotional role. But that's a great movie that, for whatever reason, it's just one of those movies that didn't do that well. I know it's a heavy subject matter. Maybe that was part of it. But Josh Brolin's in it. It's a great cast. Encourage people to go check that one out. tell talking environmental and conservation and some policy stuff and some practical examples of how the market isn't just the big bad part of environmentalists there's actually good stuff going on we like to highlight good stuff cat dwyer joining us okay we talked fish and water uh let's get on dry land for a minute sustaining wildlife habitat and you used an interesting uh example here that i've kind of been following for a few years because i find it fascinating uh, elk occupancy agreements. So let's talk a little wildlife habitat for a minute. Yeah. Um, so the, the group I work with, PERC, um, partnered with another conservation group 
uh, in Montana called the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. Um, and the two of us worked with a, uh, a private ranching family in a beautiful spot of Montana called the Paradise Valley. Um, and we worked with them to conserve nearly 500 acres of their ranching operation um, to be designated uh, elk winter range. Um, so to provide a little bit of context around this, um, basically the private lands in a place like Paradise Valley provide a really critical service of providing habitat for a whole host of species, one of them being uh, elk, which is a, a really important keystone species um, of what is known as the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. Uh, which is one of the, if not the largest intact ecosystems in North America. Um, so they provide this habitat, but doing so comes at a cost to landowners. Elk, you know, have to, their cattle have to compete with forage with elk, uh, elk knock down fences, and they also potentially transfer um, a disease called brucellosis, which causes cattle to abort their young. Um, so providing this habitat comes at a real cost. Um, and many of these ranchers are, are truly just like barely hanging on. Um, and at the same time that they're dealing with this cost, there's, there's really just sort of mounting uh, urban development pressure. Um, all of these damn Californians keep moving <laughs> here to Montana. Um, and uh, they, uh, so there's, there's just a huge pressure to, to develop a place like Paradise Valley. Um, and if that happens, then these large private working lands are gonna be subdivided into ranchettes and into you know, strip malls. Um, and we will lose that wildlife habitat completely. So Herc and we're trying to find a way to conserve this habitat, conserve these migration corridors. Um, and while at the same time recognizing the really valuable critical role that private lands play um, in, in providing habitat. Um, so, you know, this elk occupancy agreement is essentially a shorter term habitat lease. Um, and it's an alternative to a more onerous model that the government puts forth, which are conservation easements. Um, you know, many landowners are willing and, and able to manage their land for conservation and to provide habitat. Um, but the conservation easements that the government offers require conservation in perpetuity. Um, so that comes with a lot of strings and not a lot of landowners are, are willing always to, to go, you know, go with that agreement. Um, so having other tools like an elk occupancy agreement or other similar shorter habitat leases uh, offers just more opportunity to help conserve, to conserve habitat um, and make sure that these working lands continue working and that elk have, um, you know, these migration corridors open. Yeah, we've talked about those easements with our friend Gabby Hoffman when she talks conservation with us. And the problem with that is, like you mentioned, that's that's kind of a one shot deal, because once you do it, it's almost you talked about an act of Congress. This literally would take an act of Congress to get those easements changed back over. Um, but we need to mention here, too, historically, this is a new twist on a very old problem settling the West. Of course, we know the extremes of them almost wiping out the buffalo as an invasive species, quote unquote, for all the cattle guys and the railroads. Um, this goes back again. We keep hearing it over and over again. Proper land usage, property rights. This is some very fundamental stuff to Americans that just keeps popping up. This just has kind of an environmental or a climate-based uh, overtone to it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think something, you know, sort of our theme here of, of things that are overlooked within the environmental space, uh, private lands are often overlooked. Um, and Private landowners have, you know, over centuries learned how to properly manage their land, right? 
Um, and they're really our partners in conservation. Um, and like I said, the reality in a place like Paradise Valley, and this is an issue that's happening all across the West, it's, it's really a choice between urban development or keeping these private lands working, which keeping them working means these are large open landscapes. They provide habitat. They also provide, you know, food, <laughs> which is critically important. Um, so there's a lot of value there. Uh, and a group like Perk, like we just don't, we don't view them as our enemy. We view them as our partners in conservation. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's um, social justice, education, anything. A lot of this stuff starts with a breakdown when government and the private sector don't see each other as partners and start becoming adversarial. It's kind of a universal theme. And it applies here as well to especially land use out West where it's a real issue and been an issue from the beginning. I figured it'll be an issue for a long time to go. Okay. Let's talk some trees. Problem with trees are, I, I just had to trim some off my property, is a tree close to your house is a bomb waiting to go off. Out west, they're fuel for wildfires. It, the perception is wildfires are getting worse and worse. There's also data saying that they're getting worse and worse. You brought it up that there's some market stuff trying to address this and not just the usual uh, government programs because, frankly, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, Forest management is one of those things nobody wants to talk about until something's on fire, and then nobody wants to talk about it afterwards, but it's vitally important, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is, yeah. Um, so to provide a little context on, on what is often described as the wildfire crisis, um, wildfires are getting larger and hotter, um, in large part as a result of over a century of fire suppression policy from the Forest Service. Um, basically that, that policy of putting out all fires as quickly as possible disrupted natural fire cycles. I think it's worth noting that wildfire is a really important part of a forest ecosystem. Um, it has regenerative benefits. Um, and so our suppression policies disrupted natural fire cycles, um, and it led to a buildup of fuel sources in our forests, um, which means there's more fuel for a wildfire to consume. Therefore the fires burn hotter, um, and longer. Um, also, the wildfire season is sort of um, expanding, um, especially as we see drought conditions throughout the West. So fires are starting earlier and they're lasting longer into the fall. Um, so this, this problem has been growing um, and the Forest Service has identified uh, 80 million acres in need of restoration. That's their backlog right now. 63 million of that 80 million um, are have been identified um, at a severe risk of catastrophic wildfire. So that's a huge backlog. And at the current pace and scale, the Forest Service, it will take decades, multiple decades to address the full backlog. And of course, over that course of time, the backlog is going to continue to grow. So it's really, it's a huge problem that it's, it's gonna take a lot of effort to really get our hands around and get ahead of it. Um, and thankfully, the private sector, some really interesting, innovative financial tools have emerged um, that are helping increase the pace and scale of that restoration. Uh, one group that's doing this is called uh, Blue Forest. Um, and they, in partnership with the World Resources Institute, pioneered what's called the Forest Resilience Bond. And it's a simple model, but it's brilliant. It basically brings stakeholders together to fund this kind of work. So uh, they, they pool money from uh, like an impact investor or an insurance company to put the money up front for the bond to get the restoration work done. And then stakeholders who would benefit from forest restoration, like a, you know, water utility in a particular municipality, um, they agree to pay back the bond at a reasonable rate of return once the restoration is complete. Um, so it's a really cool model to just 
get capital on the ground to increase the pace and scale. talk about a really tough issue january 6th everybody gets heated about it everybody's got opinions we're talking to our good friend michael siegel about it all right buddy you at ordinary-times.com you waded into the deep end of this thing um i'm just gonna let you set it up because i don't want to put words in your mouth here because it's such a touchy issue for a lot of people um we talk about the deaths surrounding it not directly the one uh poor individual had a stroke did it cause because i know people debate you know who actually got hurt death counts it the one death that is inarguably connected to january 6th is ashley babbitt again i'm just gonna let you set it up but you wrote about it we've all seen this this whole here's the thing with ashley babbitt with me just to set this up the entire thing's on video pretty much from the moment she went into the building to the moment that she was shot we've got everything she did on video you can watch almost all but i think about three and a half minutes of her time in the capitol is on video it's a tough spot because we've all watched it you know, if if the person that shot her sir, waits 30 seconds, that tag team is there and that situation is probably diffused and that doesn't happen. He didn't have that kind of hindsight that we have. She was going through the speaker's lobby. And for folks that don't know this, the speaker's lobby, members of Congress can't just walk in there. This is a restricted area on a normal day, let alone on a day like this where they're trying to evacuate Congress members like you, you can't just walk in there. There's a door there for a reason. OK, um, but your take on Ashley Babbitt. And you dealt with who has responsibility for Ashley Babbitt. Yeah, what, what actually motivated this was every time the January 6th committee comes up, um, Ashley Babbitt starts trending on Twitter with people asking for justice for her. And then what actually made me write was seeing people's responses that were like, well, she deserved what she got. And my feeling was, no, she didn't. You know, no one, I don't think anyone deserves to be shot. There may be circumstances where someone has to be shot, but no one deserves to die. But you know, the situation was that you had the speaker's lobby, you had a barricade, you had three police officers there with a much larger crowd trying to break in. And she tried to crawl in through a window and was shot and killed. And the investigation by not one, but two agencies, the DC police and the, I believe the secret service concluded that the uh, shooting was justified. And a lot of people are going around saying you know, she was executed, that she was, you know, trying to stop the rioting or whatever. And, and these aren't, aren't really true. But I actually I feel some sympathy for her. I feel bad for her family. I mean, she, you know, this was a woman who should not be dead. But I don't blame the police for what happened. And usually I'm very skeptical of shootings. But in this case, I, I think that the uh, analysis, I mean, we've all seen the videotape. I think the analysis was correct. And what I talked about was, you know, if you want to affix blame for what happened, I think it goes to Donald Trump and his supporters for the stop the steal thing. You know, they what's one of the things that's coming out of the January 6th committee was every run around Donald Trump was telling him you lost the election. Bill Barr told him that his children told him that his son-in-law told him that everyone around him was telling that and he just refused to believe them or just 
didn't want it, didn't care. Um, the people he was listening to were people like Rudy Giuliani, who was telling him that he that he won. And so, you know, he continued to he lied effectively, continued to feed that lie, continued to rile up his supporters, saying your democracy is being stolen, your country is being stolen. They gathered them on January 6th. Remember, January 6th was picked because that was the day the vote was going to be certified. And the reason they had that rally was because this crackpot theory emerged that Mike Pence could overturn the election. And our friend Bert Lyko wrote about this in Ordinary Times that this was just nonsense. There was no legal way that Mike Pence could overturn the election. And even Congress could at most send those certifications back to the states to confirm them. They couldn't just override them. And so the people were gathered there on a false premise. They were then riled up, you know, they were turned loose and you know, the, the main violence was started by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, but those were also stimulated. One of the, another thing that's come out of the January 6th committee was when Donald Trump at the debate was asked to denounce the Proud Boys and told them to stand by, that they used that as a recruiting tool. That was one of the things that they used to build up their numbers to the point where they could breach the Capitol. And so, you know, Ashley Babbitt was a grown woman. She had agency. She made her decisions. But I think you have to put some responsibility on the people who gathered a mob, set them loose, knowing that violence might happen, that someone might get killed. You know, they didn't specifically single out her, but they set the mob loose in a circumstance that might result in people dying. And, you know, we, there's a very specific legal definitions of who's responsible, incitement and all those. Again, our lawyer friends write about that. So there's not a legal responsibility. But there is, I think, a moral responsibility for what happened. You know, there's a line in the Bible I'm fond of quoting that, not, uh, that you shall not put a stumbling block in front of the blind, which is interpreted by most sages to mean don't put people in positions where they're tempted to do bad things. You know, don't provoke people to do bad things. And I think in this case, with two months of lies and the rally and everything else that was going on, that created a situation where someone could die. And so if you want to put responsibility on people, I think that's where some, at least some of the responsibility goes. Not a legal responsibility, but a moral responsibility. John Miller talking a little baseball. Okay, so we know what the problem is. We know that the money's an issue. What's some of the things we can do about it? My first question about this, though, is if it's a cultural problem, like you said, MLB's thrown plenty of money at Little League Baseball. That's not the issue. How do you change a cultural problem? You have to have a cultural solution, don't you? Yeah, and that means the people at the grassroots uh, having ideas. Um, So as a follow-up to my first piece, I wrote about some of those ideas and, um, you know, basically if you think about, uh, you know, youth baseball, youth baseball as its own sport, what you need is for there to be balls in play. You cannot have youth baseball become a a contest of whether the pitcher can throw a strike or not. So you need to change the rules so that you have that ball in play at least every 30 seconds. So one thing I like to do is, play one strike and you're out or two strikes and you're out where I'm pitching or a machine is pitching and you're getting a strike. 
and the ball's in play. So that's one way. Um, co coaches catching to just kind of make the pitchers more comfortable and have them uh, you know, get rid of pass balls and, and sort of accelerate the tempo. Um, playing uh, with, there's a guy in California named David Klein who has a game called Speedball, which is three teams uh, show up every game. Uh, one team hits, one team plays the infield, one team plays the outfield, and you rotate. So you get more at-bats with only five players, and you have different rules to accelerate the game. Uh, smaller balls to make it easier to throw strikes. Um, five on five with three bases. You know, people think that baseball is kind of etched in stone and, and you're handed down in the Constitution, but it's actually a very malleable game. And there are lots of rule changes in the 19th century. And I think you just have to change the rules until it is exciting again. And, and if, if it's not, then why, why would a kid want to play if it's, if it's just standing there? Uh, I don't know if you know, know the, the Peter Paul Mary song, Right Field. They sing, uh, uh, playing right field can be lonely and dull. Little leagues never have lefties who pull. And so it's a song about a kid just standing there and all of a sudden the ball comes out to him and he's just shocked. So yeah, baseball should not be that, that picnic. <laughs> it should be fun and, and rhythmic and have uh, you know good pace to it. And so you need to again, change the rules so you get that pace. Now that's something that football has done in America, especially now we talked about how the, that's become a clinic kind of sport. They, you do, they play seven on seven, you do clinics, you go to things like that. It seems to me like something like that, because it sounds like, well, that's not the real game of baseball. No, but what it does do is the one thing that's really hard to get Little League to do is it builds a skill set, but it still does it in a fun way that doesn't drag like a full-blown game does. Yeah, that's really smart. I should look into that. I, I don't know that much about football, but um, yeah, that seems like they've, and they're kind of forced to, I guess, because the the, the, the grown-up game is, is so insane, so you need to modify it. But yeah, I'm all, I'm all for just making up stuff that uh, works in the moment um, and not trying to you know, be too traditionalist because eventually if they're good, they'll, they'll be able to play at the higher level in the real game too. Yeah. John W. Miller joining us now. Uh, you have one suggestion that I think is a great suggestion, but let's be honest. Baseball can be a little stodgy. They can be a little traditionalist. They can be a little slow to change, but I think you have a good suggestion here. You talk about the coaches at the little league level. It's set in stone that they're not to be paid, but this is something that should probably be changed because, and you had a great line in there. It's like, well, you don't expect free violin lessons. Why would you expect free baseball lessons? Should they, should they have some kind of a standardization of coaching? Well, um, yes. Uh, it seems like it, it's going to be hard to fix this problem if you don't admit that your average parent, with all due respect, is um, probably not a qualified baseball or softball coach. And by the way, when I say baseball, I include softball and I include girls, girls sports. So um, uh, there should be a middle ground between uh, a private club or somebody's making, you know, and there are club owners, by the way, who make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so there should be a, should be a middle ground between the, the volunteer parent who knows nothing about the sport and then the private club where um, it's, you know, three or $4,000 to play. Um, and so I think it would be reasonable to have you know, a fee that would be, you know, say, $300, um, which is manageable for almost all families if, if, you know, in the broads per year, in broad sense, and then uh, paying coaches something. And so then you can get some qualified people and, and you can demand a kind of performance and demand a kind of pace and de demand a standard of, of, of fun and, and excitement that um, you don't get if it's a a parent who does not know what they're doing and just standing there. And, and you know, it drives me crazy when I see a, a dad standing at home plate, hitting a ball to one kid at a time. 
uh, while eight kids just stand there. <laughs> so I, I bring up the, the European kind of club model where it's often um, a public field or uh, kind of a public structure, but you're, you're paying the, the, the coaches and, and the, the fee is somewhere between the, the little league, you know, 50 bucks or hundred bucks, and then the private club, three or 4,000. All right. One of the things we always appreciate about you is you find these great human interest stories. Give me a couple that you found writing about this, about baseball. Give me one or two of the great individual people that you met that really bring this to life. So I, I, I mentioned Nelson Cooper, who's a, um, an African-American man in his 20s who, when he moved to Pittsburgh, was disappointed not to find baseball. And so he started out with a, a group of kids and, and just um, running practices and games. And now he has 80 kids playing all kinds of levels and is sending a kid to, to um, there's a, a kid from that program going to play shortstop at a major college. There's um, you know, just a sort of culture and community that he's built around it. And I, I really uh, admire that. Um, I interviewed uh, a former major league catcher, Charlie Green for the story. And Charlie grew up in Miami. And he told me when he was playing little league, he played one game a week and that was the highlight of his week. And it wasn't more than that. And that guy made it to the major leagues. Um, so you don't need the, the, all the, the bells and whistles sometimes, um, you know, if you love it and you're talented, uh, you'll, you'll get there eventually. All right. You coach it yourself. Tell me one of yours though. What, just put it on a human level for me. You're a great writer, which is why we always enjoy talking to you, but t tell us what you get out of something like little league and working with the kids. And I mean, it's a game, it's a sport, you're helping kids. What does it mean to you though? Well, I, I love, um, you know, sort of leading uh, players into a, a place where they can play really well without, you know, yelling and screaming. I feel like kids usually don't listen that much to, to what you're saying, especially in a group. So it's all about setting up a structure where they're figuring it out for themselves by playing and then you have to make adjustments, but ultimately they have to learn by doing. I do try to get, um, you know, boys to talk about their feelings essentially uh, in a way that maybe has not been presented in them before. One example, there was a game a few years ago where we had scored uh, four runs in the, in the top of the sixth in, six in the sixth inning game to take like a three run lead. And then we gave up four to lose the game in the bottom of the six. And everybody was completely devastated and everybody was just sitting there um, just, you know, crying. And it was, you know, they, they were 10. It was a really crushing loss. In the next practice, I sat everybody down and I said, well, let's talk about what you were feeling in that moment. And, and I imagine that uh, the feelings you have could be shame. And I explained what that meant and, or anger because you're mad or pride because you came back um, or, you know, sadness. And I explained what all those feelings meant and, and they kind of took it all in. And then I went around and had them say, which of those feelings they identified with. And one of the kids goes, coach, I felt all of those. <laughs> and so, yeah, just the, the, you know, I'm not there to, to lecture people about, you know, big, heavy stuff, but when the moment comes up like that, then you have their attention and they, you can kind of help them connect. Because I remember as a, as a kid, you know, just feeling very angry whenever I failed and baseball is a lot of failure and getting really angry and, and mad and, and not knowing what to do. And, and I, you know, wishing I had, or in hindsight, wish I had a, a coach who sort of explained how you cope with that because baseball is a sport where it can just be excruciating. You're by yourself, you fail, everybody's looking at you. Um, and so, yeah, it's a chance for a coach to, to kind of, uh, use that moment to, to help somebody you know, grow up a little bit. Yeah. John W. Miller, love talking to you, my friend. He's got two great pieces 
on this topic out in American Magazine, how America sold out Little League Baseball is one of them. Nine ways to get kids to fall in love with baseball again is the other one. We will be linking to both of them in the show notes. You, man, you, my friend, have a lot of irons in the fire, though. Let folks know what you have going on. We've had you on before about Moundsville. Folks can still go find that at pbs.org. Uh, let folks know what you're doing in your social media so they can keep up with you. Uh, so, yeah, I, my Twitter handle is JWM uh, Journalist. Um, I uh, write a column for America every couple of weeks. Um, I'm working on a book project about baseball, which I, I can't detail yet, but it's about baseball. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at different coaching jobs in Pittsburgh. So keeping busy and, uh, yeah, enjoying the kind of the interest in, the, in this story because I, I didn't expect it would have this much interest, but people really care about baseball. So it's fun to. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.